It's my pleasure to attempt the impossible today. Lauren said a Herculean task. I would just say an impossible task. I was reflecting this morning. So many years back now, it seems, I uh, tried to give an overview of the book of Proverbs. And then not that long ago, Acts. And now the Pentateuch. I appreciate the sentiment because it was originally one book. Um, And it's good to remember that. This was originally one continuous scroll, and at some point in church history, it was chopped up into five uh, books. But do think of the Pentateuch as as one corpus, one book, and you'll start to see some things that perhaps maybe you'd missed before. Um, How to do this? You know, one thing I'll do is take my watch off. It doesn't mean anything. It just means my watch is now off. (laughs) But it might help me. And, you know, if, if we don't get beyond the early chapters of Genesis, I'm sorry. I mean, don't blame me. Let's just pray briefly before we begin. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Uh, we're so thankful that we can be together today around your word and, uh, and to, to think upon that which is true. Please guide us, guide our thoughts and our hearts in worship Guide my words that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought maybe just to try and answer a few questions then uh, as a way of providing an overview. Uh, First of all, why why spend the next year studying the Pentateuch? And the simple answer is because it is the backbone of the entire Bible. This is the foundation for everything that comes after It's in the Pentateuch that we're introduced to the doctrines of God, of mankind, of sin, salvation, of the end times, of covenant, and and so many other things. Uh, And and after you move out of the Pentateuch into whatever part of Scripture, it's not an overestimate to say that you really can't understand other portions of the Bible until you have a good grasp of the Pentateuch. So when you get into the land and Israel in the land, you can't understand their behavior or God's judgment of their behavior unless you understand the, 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 the baseline, the standard to which they were being called. And similarly, when you get to the prophets and the prophets indict the people of Israel, they're doing so with a known standard. Uh, their references will seem quite obscure to you until you know and are f- at home with the law, the law that God had given to his people by which to flourish. Um, and when the prophets project forward and speak of a glorious future for God's people, they're also doing so with reference to the Pentateuch and the truths that were given there. And so the prophets will only ever come alive to you when you understand the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the wisdom literature, again, is no exception. What the wisdom literature is doing is trying to fill in the, the gaps that were not addressed by the law, and that's not a criticism of the law. The law gives a, a lattice. I often describe it as a lattice. It tells the people of Israel very clearly what was right and what was wrong. Well, there's a lot of life left to be explored after you've given the law, and the wisdom literature explores that, but with an anchor point in the Pentateuch. So when you get into Proverbs and and the Psalms and, and all the other wonderful books in the center of your Bible, you have to understand that they have as their reference point the, the Pentateuch. When you move to the New Testament, you can't understand Jesus' teaching. You can't understand what the issues were that he was confronting unless you understand the cultural background and, in large measure, the Pentateuch. And then, finally, the epistles. The epistles are giving us a new law as part of a new covenant, which will make no sense unless you understand the old law and the old covenant. 
So this initial 20% of our Bibles, it's 20% roughly, uh, is the backbone for the rest of Scripture. And uh, though it may not be the first place that you turn to for your morning devotions, I would commend you to be very much in the Pentateuch regularly and trying to understand uh, these initial books because it will only ever shed more light on everything else that follows in Scripture. Uh, When should you read every single day? That's the answer. Read the Pentateuch every single day. It's, uh, it's good for you. What are you reading? And this is where I want to spend most of our time. What exactly is it that you'll be studying for the next year? Well, the Pentateuch, yes, and that's from the, the Greek terms pent, which means five, and tukos, which is uh, volume, so five volumes, but that doesn't help us all that much. Um, another way in which this corpus is referred to is the law. Uh, again, that's not wrong. There's a lot of legal literature in these first five books, but it, it, it collapses the Pentateuch a little bit too much for my liking to simply say it's the law because that law comes within a context of God's covenant and that covenant comes with the context of God's saving work. Uh, so the law only gets us so far. My favorite name for these first five books is the Torah. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the first five books of the Bible referred to as the Torah and Torah is a Hebrew word that simply means instruction. And the reason I like to refer to these books as Torah is because it reminds me as to what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to give instruction for how we are to live our lives in a right relationship with God. Um, Now, broadly, if I can expand upon that, what exactly is it instructing us? This part of the Bible is the story of God speaking to Israel and saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you in the land. Uh, As you get into extra resources on the Pentateuch, uh, any author will try to summarize these first five books, and it's a a difficult task if if we're to kind of condense the message of these first five books into one sentence. But uh, here's my my effort, and it's not just mine, but many have have attempted it with this line. Uh, The Torah gives the message of God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land. That is the story of the Pentateuch. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land. Now, how do we get there? How can we understand that to be the message of the Pentateuch? Well, let's try to walk through these first five books, very, very high level, and not necessarily exposing any one text, but just drawing out some key themes to give you an understanding of the the overarching storyline that then you will study in detail over the course of the next year. Obviously, we begin in Genesis and uh, God creating all things. Genesis chapter 1 certainly is the story of where we came from, but more than that and and, uh, before that, it is the story of who God is. Before we read and come to understand of where we came from, we read and understand who God is. You have to understand, when Moses writes Genesis, he is, to some measure, responding to other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. Every civilization has an account of where they came from. And so there's a polemical edge to Genesis chapter 1 when Moses responds and says, actually, this is where we came from. Let me tell you the truth about our origins. And the first thing Moses said is God created the heavens and the earth. Because in these other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, there is a sense of many gods 
and of the gods being on some par with people and able to be manipulated by people. And Moses puts a stop to all that thinking by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then notice, just by way of example, that the account of God's creative work is very repetitious. And what I mean by that is where he says, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, It's a word-for-word repetition in the original language. The point is, the text doesn't read, God said, let there be light, and then after some passing of time, creation responded and some light emerged. It doesn't say that. Let there be light, and there was light immediately, exactly as God pronounced it. And so we see in the creation story an emphatic declaration as to God's omnipresence, omniscience, his power, his authority. Exactly what he says happens immediately. And that sets a precedent for the rest of Scripture, especially as it relates to the importance of God's word. Now, the pinnacle of the creation account is found in his creation of mankind. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we are a special, special bunch in all of the created order because we are the only ones that bear God's image. Uh, What does it mean to bear his image? It means that we are his representatives. Plainly stated, to be an image bearer is to be a representative of God. We are on this planet in order to make God known, in order to represent him. And uh, we could spend the whole morning unpacking that single truth because it is so profound and formative for our understanding of ourselves. In fact, many of the problems in society today, I would argue, have come about because we've lost a sense of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. We are here to be image bearers, that is to represent God, and uh, and that infers at least one major motif throughout the book of Genesis that we find, and that is kingship. I'll talk about this more as we get into the life of Abraham, but... In the ancient Near East, the concept of image-bearing was not foreign. Many civilizations would talk about the image-bearer, and it was always the king. The king was the image-bearer of his god. He was the representative. And Moses is happy to lean on that imagery and say, you're the image-bearer of the one true god, and that sets you up as his vice-regent on earth. Uh, That's also made plain in the imperative that God gives to mankind when he says, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. These are kingly verbs. You are a vice-regent on planet earth in order to subdue it, to be God's representative. You have a royal role. Adam and Eve are set up as these vice-regents. As you know, they fail. They fail in the task. They scorn the privilege, and they fail in their responsibility. How does that failure come about? By way of the serpent. And uh, one thing that I often say is that at the point when the serpent spoke to Eve and she succumbed to the distortion of God's uh, imperative, she was better imaging the serpent than she was imaging God. She was more a representative of the serpent at that moment than she was a faithful representative of God. And just by way of application, you might say that we're always image-bearing something. The question is, what is it you're choosing to represent? Now, the consequences for that sin, the fall, are severe, and that's an understatement. Uh, God curses the ground, he curses the serpent, he makes life hard. Um, If I can summarize it like this, everything that he had commissioned Adam and Eve to do in chapter 1, he then thwarts by way of the curses in chapter 3. So Adam is to, 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 to work the ground, to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue it, Uh, They're to fill the earth with offspring, and all of those things are now made all the much harder by the fact of their disobedience and the entrance of sin 
into the world. But at the same time, within the mix of those curses, we get the very, very first expression of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, an individual, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's so much to be said there. Uh, one thing is that it introduces the notion of the seed to us in the book of Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman and, and between your seed and her seed, uh, the offspring. That then becomes the governing idea throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is about the search for the promised seed. Uh, or to put it a different way, it is about the perpetuation of the promised line. We all understand at this point that God is committed to make things right again, and he's going to do so through this individual, this, this one man. Where is he? Who is he? How is he going to come about? That's the book of Genesis. We're looking for the promised seed. And uh, just by way of statistics, 59 times we read of that word seed in the book of Genesis compared to 170 in the rest of the Pentateuch. So you can see it's, it's loaded up front in this initial book. We're looking out for the promised seed. And the whole book now starts to focus on that search. It's not the first time seeds occurred. We have read about the seed in Genesis chapter 1 uh, in, an, in an agricultural sense as we read about the plants producing seed according to their likeness. And that introduces us at least initially to the idea of what a seed would be like, uh, if I can put it like this, like father, like son. In Genesis chapter 1, the fruit produces seed according to its likeness. That's how the seed behaves in Genesis. As you map across to the, to the humans, it's no different. Humans produce the seed according to their likeness. And so there's a sense as you read Genesis, we've been here before. Well, yes, we have, because like father, like son. And the, the, the characters in Genesis just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And that's no accident. After Genesis chapter 3, uh, we get into these very, very dark chapters where I always refer to the explosion of sin. Sin starts to take full effect we start to see the full repercussions of Adam and Eve's disobedience uh, from 4 through to about the flood. This broader section, 1 through 11, I should have said, is often referred to as primordial history, primordial history. And the flood is God's attempt to wipe the slate clean. Uh, he says in response to mankind's sin that has got out of control and is, is far worse than any of us might ever have imagined. I'm going to start over again. Now, it certainly is an act of judgment. It is an act of judgment. However, if you look at the structuring of the flood narrative, what you see is that the emphasis is actually on his saving grace in that act of judgment, meaning he chooses to save our family. He didn't have to do that. He chooses to save Noah, and he preserves Noah and his family. And then in chapter 9, we start again. And you read the Noahic covenant, and you see there are clear echoes back to Genesis chapter 1, the Adamic mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, he's passing that on to Noah. So Noah is presented as a second Adam-like figure, and we're starting over again. But, as you and I know, the flood didn't take away sin. And that point is made very clearly for us in the narrative with the Tower of Babel incident. They build a tower up to the heavens. Now, just think about this. What was the reason for them building the tower? They wanted to build the tower, the text tells us, so that they wouldn't disperse, so that they wouldn't have to spread. Well, why was that any concern for them except for the fact that in Genesis chapter 1, God said, fill the earth. 
And the pride of their heart says, we don't want to obey. Rather, we want to build a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And God thwarts that effort. Here's what's interesting about the Tower of Babel incident is that it's written in such a way to hearken back to Genesis chapter 3. There's lots of language that's very similar. It comes immediately after God has started over with a new creative work, the flood, and then the flood subsides and Noah emerges. It's as if Moses is telling us this is a Genesis chapter 3, take 2. This is a fall, Mark 2. We're not any further on than we were when Adam and Eve first sinned. So the overarching message at the end of primordial history, Genesis 1 through 11, should be on your part, we need help. We read Genesis 1 through 11, and by the end of it, we should be exhausted by the reality of sin in the world. We desperately, desperately need help. And God responds to that by raising up this man named Abram. Before we talk about Abram, just a a note on structure. Uh, You'll notice as you read through the book of Genesis, you'll read some 11 times, these are the generations of. These are generations of. And we read it in verse 27 of chapter 11 by way of introducing Abraham. Uh, We call that the Toledot formula. You didn't come today thinking you'd learn some Hebrew. I'll give you some for free. The Toledot formula, that's the one word in Hebrew, and it's translated as these are the generations of, and it is the structuring mechanism for the book of Genesis. It occurs 11 times, and every time it occurs, the story is moving on to consider a new family or a new individual. And the fascinating thing about the Toledot formula is that it functions as a zoom lens in the book of Genesis. So the first time we read it is in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We're wide-angle lens. The last time we read it is 37.2. These are the generations of Jacob, Jacob and his 12 sons. And so what the narrative of Genesis is doing is slowly moving in and in and into this one family and the 12 sons, all in response to the question of where is the seed? Who's carrying forward the promised line? Every time you read the Toledot formula, we're advancing in that story. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we read of this man Abraham, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, are perhaps the most important verses that you're going to read in the life of Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, that's the first iteration of what we call the Abrahamic promises, and they get expanded upon in subsequent chapters. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then again in 13, 15, 17, and 22. So 12 and 22 are the bookends of Abraham's life, and then just think about the odd numbers in between, 13, 15, 17. The promises get expanded upon, they get formalized by way of a covenant, and it is true to say that after that, Every single passage in the Pentateuch in some way goes back to the Abrahamic promises. The way to think about the Abrahamic promises is threefold, land, seed, blessing. God promises to Abraham a land, a seed, that seed that we're looking for, it's coming through him, and blessing specifically through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Land, seed, blessing. Every single portion of the Pentateuch thereafter in some way relates back to those three ideas. Sometimes it might be exclusively focusing on the land. Sometimes it would be focusing on the seed. Sometimes a mix of the two or the three. But they all go back to this formative moment when God makes this promise to Abraham as the means by which he's going to bring about the the plan in Genesis 3.15. So as you ruminate on the Pentateuch for the next year or so, you need to keep that fixed in your mind. If, uh, If Lauren Brown 
sneaks into your house at 1 a.m. in the morning and you're fast asleep and she shakes you, you should wake up and say, Lancy Blessing. It's just, it's right there in your mind. That's how much it needs to be in you this year because that's how you understand the Pentateuch. So what happens to Abraham? Well, he does some good stuff and he does some bad stuff in, 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 <laughs> in just a few minutes. <laughs> it's 22, 11. In just a few minutes, we'll talk about how to read the Pentateuch. And one thing I'll tell you is, is avoid reducing the characters down to a mere moral example. Um, the more I read Genesis, the more I'm convinced every single person in here is a rascal. You don't want to be like them. And more to the point, they're not given simply so as to form a moral example. Be like this man, don't be like this man. That's not the point. Abraham is striving for an heir. That's the tension in the Abraham narrative. He doesn't have an offspring. Uh, and, and, and God has promised him an offspring, but he's nowhere to be seen. And so Abraham makes some bad decisions in order to try and force God's hand and bring about the, the heir. And that introduces us to another idea that's prevalent in Genesis, and that is of righteousness. So the seed is going to be a kingly figure. It talks about that in the early chapters of Genesis. And one of the reasons that you see Abraham interacting with many foreign kings as a peer is to advance that motif. Abraham interacts with many foreign kings as a peer, as an equal. Because God is trying to show us the seed is coming through this man. And one of the key ideas that is associated with the seed is of royalty. But also associated with the notion of the seed is that of righteousness. There are several times in the book of Genesis where it could go one of two ways. There are two offspring, and who will be the one that perpetuates the line of the seed? And it is often the one that is declared to be righteous that carries it forward. The one that is declared to be unrighteous, for whatever reason, is set to one side. So that's a question when we get to Abraham's life and he keeps making bad decisions. Is this man righteous? Can he really be the one that is, is, is uh, trusted to carry forward the line of the seed? And of course, the climax of the narrative is when he has his offspring, Isaac, and God puts him in a catch-22 situation. Chapter 22, catch-22, crucify your son. Kill your son. Um, you see the problem. He, he has the heir that he's been waiting for. This is the carrier of the promised line. And God says, kill him. So he either disobeys, and now he's counted as unrighteous, or he obeys, declared to be righteous, but the line's just lost. And Abraham in faith obeys, and God rewards him for his faith by the divine oath and says, it's all come good in the end. That leads us on then to the next patriarch and Isaac. Isaac is very, very brief in the book of Genesis. He's not a, 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 as, as extensive a character as Abraham or Jacob. Uh, he really is a bridge between Abraham and Jacob. And he takes all of Abraham and passes that on to Jacob. Though it is within the story of Isaac that we're introduced to the next tension that will pervade the story of Jacob. And that is that of striving, fraternal strife. These two twins in the womb, who God refers to as nations, and uh, one, the younger, uh, will preside over the older, and that leads to um, striving between Esau and Jacob. The interesting thing to note about Jacob is he uh, is, is deceptive as a character. He steals the birthright and the firstborn blessing, and then he's forced into exile, is that he is a fighter, a man who refuses to submit to God's ways. 
And whereas Abraham, times in his life, was very, very commendable in trusting in the Lord, uh, Jacob refuses to. And he strives and he fights and he refuses to submit to the ways of the Lord. Uh, One of the things you see in Genesis is this kind of repetitious narrative where certain episodes repeat themselves. You read it and you feel like, okay, we've read something very similar to this before. Absolutely. And when when you get that feeling, the point is compare and contrast with the previous iteration. And there are a number of instances in Jacob's life where we read of something that was very Abraham-like, but what's the difference? The difference is Abraham trusted in the Lord where Jacob sought to do it in his own strength. So as he's looked for his wife, he's determined to work for seven years, to, to, to do it all on his own, and there's no sense of trusting in God's grace. And so we're kind of waiting for Jacob to be affirmed righteous in order that the line of the seed might be perpetuated through him, and it comes by way of God breaking his hip. Uh, it's not that Jacob finally got the picture, Jacob wrestled with God and God said, I will make you submit to me. And it's when he does so that Jacob finally acquiesces to the Lord's ways and the narrative can move on to the story of Joseph. Before it moves on, there's two very, very important episodes you need to note. One is the defiling of Dana, uh, Dinah, sorry, a very strange episode, but the point there is that Simeon and Levi are overly zealous in trying to um, get revenge on the Shechemites And then the other is hidden away in chapter 35 when Reuben lays with uh, Jacob's concubine. Why are those two points important? Because when you get to the story of Jacob, uh, sorry, Jacob's sons, uh, we're introduced to another Toledote formula. And by this stage, we're well at home with the notion of looking for the the heir, who's going to be the one that carries forward the line of the seed. Well, Reuben has disqualified himself. Uh, He slept with his father's concubine, and in chapter 49, Jacob will say as much. Simeon and Levi have also disqualified themselves. They were too violent to the Shechemites. That's numbers one, two, and three in the pecking order, disqualified. So number four is Judah, and Judah rightfully stands as the heir to Jacob, except Jacob has a special love for Joseph second to youngest. And what that does for 37 through 50, it sets up a tension between Judah and Joseph. And don't think of the Joseph narrative as merely the Joseph narrative, but it's the Joseph-Judah narrative. It's a striving between these two boys to become the firstborn of Jacob, to get that special blessing. And that explains why we would read chapters like Genesis 38. Genesis 37, we read about Joseph. He goes down off to Egypt. 38, we read about the other son that's in the running for the blessing of the firstborn. And what's the question there? It's of Judah's righteousness. In order to be qualified to carry forward the line of the seed, he needs to be declared righteous. And we read in Genesis 38 a progression, a maturation on his part. He starts a wicked man doing things that are not commendable, but by the end of the chapter, when he's confronted with his failings, he's ready to confess, to, con- to, to repent. And that gives him a tick in the box. Uh, we move on. Joseph rises to power in Egypt in a quasi-regal uh, status. There's that motif of kingship again. He's presiding over the Egyptians in a foreign land. Through God's providence, he comes face to face with his brothers. He reveals himself to them. He beckons Jacob down and everything's going to be okay. And in 49, Jacob declares uh, his sons. uh, Joseph actually gets the blessing of the firstborn. Chronicles tells us that. However, he gives an incredible blessing to Judah that uh, is loaded with idyllic, Edenic imagery. And it projects far into the future, and it says, though Joseph leads the family right now, eventually Judah will, and of course we know it's from the line of Judah that comes David and eventually Christ. Um, 
well, that was Genesis. What about Exodus? <laughs> They're in Egypt, and they need to get out. And uh, there's, a, there's a pharaoh that's not being very kind to them. And so God raises up Moses, and Moses, in many respects, function as, functions as a mini version of Israel. Things happen to Moses that are about to happen to Israel. He gets drawn up out of the water. He's responsible for the death of an Egyptian. He flees into the wilderness. He meets with God in the fire. All of those things are about to happen to the nation of Israel. So he's the forerunner. And what God does to Moses and then in turn to Pharaoh is he reveals himself. The predominant theme of the book of Exodus prior to the Exodus event is God's revelation of himself. Before God is willing to save these people, he demands to be known by them. And so the first half of the book of Exodus is all about the knowledge of Yahweh. And that's where he gives Israel his covenant name, Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew verb to be. Why does he choose that name? Because he says, I will defy myself. I am who I am. You don't get to say who I am. And thereafter, he, he performs the foundational saving act of the whole Old Testament, the Exodus. He opens up the waters and Israel leave Egypt. They're no longer slaves and the Egyptians perish. That is the foundation of Old Testament soteriology. So when you move forward in the Old Testament, any Old Testament saint would have understood the question, what does it mean to be saved by going back to the Exodus? What we tend to do is map our New Testament and Pauline theology onto the Old Testament. They understood salvation in terms of the Exodus event. When you get to the prophets and they project forward and say, God has a salvation for you in mind, they refer back to the Exodus and they pitch the notion of salvation in Exodus terms. Okay, it's hard to overstate just how important the Exodus event is in terms of understanding Old Testament salvation. Exodus chapter 15 is Moses' song, and that is a tight synopsis of the whole book. If you want to understand the book of Exodus, camp out in Exodus chapter 15. It's in Exodus chapter 15 that we're introduced to what people refer to as the Exodus motif. The Exodus motif is a threefold motif i.e. of being drawn out from slavery, of being led in the wilderness, of being delivered to the mountain. That's the Exodus motif, and it pervades all of Scripture, all the way into the Gospels and the Epistles, being drawn out from slavery, wandering or being led in the wilderness, and being delivered at the mountain. And thereafter, God starts to give his law. Now, it's very, very important to understand the law only ever comes as an expression of the covenant. Before God gives his law, he has already saved them. You don't mix up the order, which is what the Israelites often did. I have already shown you my saving love, and it's on that basis that I then ask you to respond. It's not the other way around. You don't give the law first and then the saving work. They are already in a loving, caring relationship with the Lord, and from there he gives them this law, and we call it the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, maybe a misnomer because it's to all the Israelites. It's the Israelite Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is an administrative covenant. It is a covenant that is designed for Israel to flourish in their relationship with God. Let me administrate life for you in the land. And if you obey these laws, you will flourish. You will do well. And if you don't obey them, then you won't do well. At the end of Exodus, God descends, his glory descends, and is now in the midst of them, which is a wonderful thing, except for the fact it isn't. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to have access to God. It's a terrible thing to have access to God. And we see that by way of the narrative tension that Moses can't enter the tent. So think about the fact that the tabernacle that has been constructed throughout the book of Exodus is called one of two things, either the dwelling place or the tent of meeting. Well, the dwelling place, it, that it has become. God is now dwelling in the tabernacle, but it is not the tent of meeting. Moses cannot enter. 
He's been able to go up to the top of the mountain, face to face with God and commune with him. But all of a sudden now he cannot enter, end of exodus. So what's the, what's the resolution to that problem? And the problem is just merely indicative of the, the greater issue that this people can't approach the holy God. This sinful people cannot approach this holy God. How do we resolve that tension? Answer, Leviticus. And this is where the book divisions aren't that helpful. Leviticus carries on exactly from the book of Exodus. And it responds to the question, the conundrum of how can a sinful people live in fellowship with a holy God? The answer is given in the first nine chapters of the sacrificial system. So we have the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Those five offerings were the means by which the Israelites were to have communion with God. The first three were voluntary and represented an ideal worship scenario. The sin offering and the guilt offering are not voluntary, they're mandatory, and therefore when people sin, obviously. Uh, If the Israelites were to keep to that sacrificial system, life would be good with them. I often describe the sacrificial system as akin to our uh, church. We go to church, that's who we are. On a Sunday, you're not found doing anything else. It's strange to think of you doing anything else on a Sunday because you're a Christian and this defines you. Well, the sacrificial system defined the ancient Israelites. They were found to be sacrificing. It's an act of worship. And to be found to be doing anything else is weird to them. This was the means that God put in place by which they would commune with him. Then, of course, we read of Nadab and Abihu, and they do something wrong. They offer strange fire, possibly trying to get into the Holy of Holies. If you read Leviticus 16, it begins by hearkening back to Nadab and Abihu, and it suggests that maybe they were trying to get into the Holy of Holies. And so after that, there's a new, a new system or, or an augmentation of the system that's required. We have the sacrificial system, but obviously it's not as simple as as these guys thought it was because they made a a, a dreadful mistake. So what we read then in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, is you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. Uh, For every well-respecting, Bible-highlighting Christian, highlight that verse. I commend to you highlighting that verse because it explains the rest of Leviticus. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, The rest of the book is giving us that map. You have the holy and you have the common. That's the status. If you're a priest, you're holy. If you're not a priest, you're common. And that's not a fault. It's just a statement of your status. If you're common, you are either clean or unclean. If you are clean, great. You can now approach the Lord. You're allowed to bring a sacrifice. However, you might be common and unclean. That's not good. You can't approach the Lord if you're in that category. What puts you in that category? Well, perhaps the most important thing to state here is the thing that makes you unclean is not necessarily a moral failing. Okay, so read through these chapters of Leviticus and what you'll see is what makes somebody unclean is not necessarily a moral failing. Uh, If a lady gives birth, she is for a time unclean. It's not to say giving birth is sinful. If she gives birth to a girl, she's unclean for longer than if she gives birth to a boy. (laughs) If you hold to this moral structure, that gets you into hot water pretty quickly. So how do we explain this? Well, some of these laws are given simply to make Israel distinct. God is concerned that they would be holy as he is holy, which simply means distinct, separate. And so he gives these laws in part to, to draw a dividing line between them and the other nations. Because they eat bacon, you won't. There's nothing inherently wrong with bacon, but because they do it, you won't, and therefore you're going to look different. 
But some of the laws are given uh, by way of referencing the, the undergirding theology of Leviticus, and that is a striving to get back to the Edenic state of fullness of communion with God. We're trying to get back to that initial iteration of man's relationship with God before sin came into the world. It was in Eden that we experienced, enjoyed the fullness of life. Any departure away from the fullness of life is not good. And so what you read of life in a broken, fallen world is things aren't as they should be. When a lady gives birth, she loses some blood. That's not how it's supposed to be. And so for that reason, not through any fault of her own, not because of a moral failing, you've experienced a departure away from the fullness of life. And so you're in the unclean category. If she gives birth to a girl, she's giving birth to someone who in turn will lose blood. So she's unclean for a bit longer. And it's God's way of signaling we are outside of Eden. And what I'm trying to get you to do is come back to that reality of fullness of communion with me. There's more to say and Godspeed to whoever is given the task of teaching through Leviticus. Uh, The book of Numbers, Dostoevsky wrote in his uh, book, Notes from Underground, the best description of a human is a a creature who walks on two legs and is ungrateful. Uh, That's the book of Numbers. Be grateful is the message. Uh, The people are wandering in the wilderness, and very, very early on in their wanderings, they start to rebel. They fail to trust in the Lord, and the rebellions are organized into three cycles, and each cycle is organized into different acts of rebellion, and you see they get progressively worse and worse and worse. It starts with just a a low-level murmuring. They then reject the Lord's provision of food. They then work against his appointed authority, Moses. They then reject the promised land itself. They then reject the promised land itself. And so the the rebellion gets worse and worse and worse, and God punishes it by wiping out the first generation and saying, you will not enter the land. He then raises up a second generation who do marginally better, and uh, it's through the mouth of a pagan prophet that God puts on display his patience and his determination to work with these people. So we read the oracles of Balaam, Balaam, four oracles, and what is wonderful about those oracles, remember, they're coming through the mouth of a pagan prophet, and he speaks wonderfully rich theological truths, blessing Israel, that draw from previous scriptures. It's in Balaam's oracles, the third and fourth in particular, that key scriptures are brought together for the first time. Allusions back to Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, and Genesis 49, and Balaam, the pagan prophet, groups them together, and puts on display God's wonderful plan for these sinful people. And we see God's patience, his endurance with these people, and his steadfast commitment to work out his plan through them. Very next chapter, chapter 25, the people anchor themselves to Baal of Peor. See, that juxtaposition is intentional. Think about the way the text has been arranged. We get possibly one of the highest expressions of God's grace through Balaam in chapter 25, and it's no accident that the very next chapter, sorry, 24, the next chapter, 25, is the people for the first time in their history engaging in idolatry. They anchor themselves to a foreign God. And so what Moses is doing is showing us the two major themes of numbers, God's goodness, his grace, and Israel's sinfulness. That then is the entrance of idolatry into the national conscience of Israel, and it will be their Achilles heel until they go into exile. It enters in Numbers 25, and it never disappears until God takes them away into exile. Well, eventually they get to the cusp of the promised land, and that leads us to the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses stands up 
And he gives his parting speech because he's not going to enter the promised land. And he gives the law for a second time. It's not a second law. It's the same law, but given a second time. It's slightly amended in places because the first time it was given, it was given to a people that would be wandering in the wilderness. The second time it's given, it's given to a people that would be dwelling in the land. So there are a few changes. But for the large part, it's the same law. Uh, It's in Deuteronomy that we read of the Ten Commandments. We read of the Great Shema. It's also where we read Deuteronomy 28, which has its parallel with Leviticus 26. They are two chapters for you to memorize inside out, back to front, because those two chapters spell out the blessings and the curses for obedience and disobedience, respectively. It's in those two chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that Moses says, if you obey God's law, this is the good things that are going to happen to you. If you disobey, this is what's going to happen to you. There is more time given to the curses than the blessings, far more, suggesting that they were preempting failure. Moses knew that good things were not ahead, and so he majors on the curses that were coming. If you want to understand the prophets and the history of Israel in the land, you need to know these chapters because everything that God brings to pass on the kings, on the people, goes back to those two chapters. You read to the letter that God is punishing them exactly as he said he would in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So if at 3 a.m. in the morning, I mean, we had that awkward episode at 1 a.m. If at 3 a.m. in the morning, Mrs. Brown sneaks back into your house and she gives it a second shot and shakes you, you go, Deuteronomy 28! That's the second text that should be in your head as you read the Pentateuch because it, it lays a foundation for God's judgment moving forward. We only understand God's judgment by reference to that chapter. Very briefly, 11.03, two minutes. Uh, how should you study the Pentateuch? Uh, remember in the book of Acts I said narrative isn't normative, even more so here. We're in an altogether different world from the Greco-Roman world. Just because you see it in the text doesn't mean it should become a normative principle for your life. Very rarely is that the case. Okay? Uh, oftentimes we're simply being exhorted to stand back and marvel at our great God. Okay? So if I can summarize the first five books, Genesis, what do you do there? You praise God for his com- commitment to perpetuate, perpetuate the line of the seed because in that seed is your salvation. In the book of Exodus, what do you do? You know God and you praise God. You know him. He's revealed himself and you behold him as a saving God. In the book of Leviticus, what do you do? You be holy as God is holy. We are not bound by the Levitical law. We're not under the Mosaic covenant. But the same God wrote that law as wrote the New Testament. And he expects you to be holy as he expected his Old Testament saints to be holy. Book of Numbers. Don't grumble, be thankful. Book of Deuteronomy. The Lord our God is the Lord alone. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our brief time in the Pentateuch. We love your word and uh, are excited to study it more. I do pray for the year ahead for these ladies. Please, would you abundantly bless their time together, time in their homes studying your word, bless the teaching of your word, In all of it, we pray that there would be a a growing in the knowledge of these first five books, a growth in the knowledge of who you are, and a growth in the knowledge of who we are in light of your gospel. We commit ourselves to you and the year ahead in Jesus' name. Amen.